Morning, church. Um, I wanted to pray again before, before we read real quick. Lord Father, we, we thank you for this day, Lord, for waking us up today, bringing us here, Lord God. And as Jackie prayed, Lord Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your word. And in, in your word, in Isaiah 55, 11, we know that your word goes forth and accomplishes what you have sent it for, Lord. So we pray that in Jesus' name. So as you're, as you're returning to Matthew 18, uh, Kathy reminded, or told me to remind the ladies uh, to uh, not, not forget to uh, sign up for the retreat um, and also get the shirt sizes uh, put in there. So friendly reminder. Uh, I will be reading out of the New King James, as Matthew 18, 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep um, than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is alive and powerful. We pray, Lord God, that your will would be done today, God. Your word would go forth and uh, sanctify us, Lord God. We also pray for the children, that they would be blessed, and the teachers as well, Lord God, that you would lead them in your spirit, God, in your truth. Prepare us for the rest of this day, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, the little ones are free.
you guys were even in the text today. Man, God's good. So we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 18. And we want to try to keep ourselves from uh, all the mistakes of the last 3,000 years while we do it. So when we begin, the disciples are setting for us the context of what's going on. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, why do you think they're asking that? Uh, they're going to argue over who's the greatest until after the cross. In fact, later on in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, in verse 20, we're going to see an episode of the mother of the sons of Zebedee going to Jesus, right? You guys remember the story? Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons kneeling before him and said, can I ask you for something? And he said to her, what do you want? And she said, uh, say that these two sons of mine, let me infer, are the greatest. One will sit on your right hand, the other on your left. But Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. Now, why does Jesus say you don't know what you're asking for? Because where is the son of man going to be glorified? On a cross. And there's going to be one man on his right and one man on his left. Does mom know what she's asking for? No. Would she be asking for that if she did? She would not. We have this thing as human beings, you and I, that we always have this competitive nature. I don't even care. So let me just help you. I know there's somebody right now saying, I'm not, con I'm not competitive. That's just because you lose all the time. <laughs> Everyone is competitive. Everybody wants to be better than someone at something. And it is the way, the sinful nature within man, the way that we try to get over other people is usually by pulling them down. You mean that happens in church? Yeah, sure. Right? If you hear a story about somebody you feel competitive against or somebody that you'd like to be on the rung above, you'll happily share that story, won't you? We, we call that in the Bible gossip, and it's a sin. But does it stop us? We have this nature, just like the disciples, that says we want to be the greatest. We want to find a way above. And because our natures are twisted by sin... Yes, I know that we have, come to, we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he has forgiven us and given us his spirit. But Paul even told us we have a battle to fight between walking in the flesh and in the spirit. Are there times we walk in the spirit and we have victory over our pride? For sure. Are there times we lose? Yeah. And so Jesus here laying out for his disciples, he he wants them to recognize the sinful part of the nature that is the, the desire to lord it over someone else. And so he takes a lesson. He, 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 uh, in verse 2, he says he calls to himself a child. Now, I just want you to picture all the disciples gathered around Jesus. 
The question is laid out, and they're waiting for him to acknowledge one of them as the greatest. And everyone knows it's got to be Peter, because they all mention him first when they make a list. So everybody's thinking it's going to be Peter, it's going to be Peter, and, <clears throat> and Jesus, maybe he even builds up the drama a little bit, and he, and he walks past Peter, and then he walks past the next one, and the next one. And then he goes to a little child. Now, here's the error we make in studying the scripture. Then we start making this about children. This is not the point. The point is not that there's some ethical beauty of, about children. Most people who think that don't have any. <laughs> or their children are little still. When it's not about the ethical beauty of children it's not about the innocence of children it is about the social construct that Jesus and his disciples lived in the word used for child and the word used for servant are synonymous there is no stature no social stature to a child no one would ever say I want to be a child no we don't want to be a child we want to grow and become king we want the authority and we want to, to do things our way. And if only we could make the call, our world is infected with this. We can go throughout history and see the failure of socialism and communism throughout history, but we will hear people say today it would be different if I did it. Because we think somehow we have the, we're the magic piece. That is arrogance and pride. It's arrogance and pride. So Jesus is laying out for them, unless you become like children, no social standing. Zero. Nobody's inviting you over to put you at the head of the table if you're a child. Children don't come to that. There's no expectation for that. The children aren't sitting around saying, how come I didn't get invited to the boring dinner that all the adults have? There is no social standing at all. In fact, for them, there's, there's, a, 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 there's, there's maybe some, some way that we can understand this. Because to them, the child was really not seeing as having any value yet. In our world, it's a little different. We have a tendency to, to worship our children, not to devalue them. But in their culture... They didn't have value until they reached a certain point where they could be a part of life and a part of what they were doing. They're, they were just a, a mouth to feed, another, another piece that they didn't think a lot about. I think in our world, to understand the level of the way the world sees it, to understand the level of worthlessness, you could say the word fetus. Because, well, it's not even alive yet. There's no value. It's just a parasite. All these words we've heard in our time, no? Well, maybe you don't agree with them, but, but this is kind of the, the attitude. And Jesus saying, when you're looking, you guys are looking to be the greatest, and what you really need to become is a servant of all. Because you're following Jesus somewhere, aren't you? 
And the disciples are deaf to the message that Jesus has given them, especially in this section of, of the Gospels, moving toward the cross. Because Jesus, we just read it last time, right, was telling them <clears throat> he's going to be arrested, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be crucified, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. And they don't like that. Because if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, where are you following him to? You're following him to the cross. So when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He's describing not a journey to become the greatest, but a journey to become least. And it's wild if you really can wrap your minds around around what he's accomplishing, on what he's trying to lay out for them. Not only is this little child lowly in the sense of they're small physically, they're small, they have small status, there's not a lot they're, they're adding or bringing into the, the struggle of what's going on. And Jesus is saying to them, you got to become like this or you'll never make it in. They're worried about who is the greatest, who will have the most authority, who's going to be the boss of everyone. They're probably thinking about that so much because Jesus has already announced he's going to die, be buried, rise again. They, they, maybe they're thinking he'll be gone. Which one of us is supposed to take this over? But Jesus is telling them, look, unless you become like this little child, the way you see this little child, you won't even make it in. And the audience there is the disciples. He's talking to them. He's letting them know. He's laying this out for them. And then he helps us understand in verse 4, whoever, whoever humbles himself like this child, whoever becomes the least like this child, This one will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's able to lay aside all of that nature within us that wants to pull each other down. It's really a fascinating way to understand and think about ministry. Now I want you to hold that in one hand and I'm going to tell you the story of Uzziah. Many of you maybe know the story of Uzziah. Uzziah was a king. <clears throat> he was a king of Judah, one of the good kings. His father is Amaziah. His mother is Jecoliah from Jerusalem. Ministering during uh, Uzziah's reign were Hosea. You guys remember the prophet Hosea? Isaiah. Amos and Jonah. The kings in the north were Jeroboam II, Zechariah, Shalem, and Menachem. And King Uzziah enters into this world with all this stuff at 16. You guys ready to be king at 16? Oh, no, no. I know you think you are. I know I thought I was. But 
now, as an old man looking back, I, I recognize the crazy arrogance, huh? Well, King Uzziah reigned for 52 years. He had a long reign from 790 to 739. And the Bible says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So in terms of the Bible, he's a good leader, godly leader. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible tells that King Uzziah sought the Lord during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. Zechariah was a prophet. And so he was a godly prophet that came alongside a young man to disciple him, mentor him, to be a good leader. And the Bible says that he was successful. He became a, a godly leader. It says that Uzziah sought after God and God made him prosperous. In 2 Chronicles 26, you can read the story yourself. But eventually, Zechariah the old prophet died. And when Zechariah the old prophet died... Uzziah rose up to become intelligent and innovative. And he continued to lead Judah into great time, a great time of, of prosperity. He was used by God to defeat the Philistines, the Arabs. He built big, strong towers, strengthened his army. He commissioned skilled men, and they built devices that could shoot arrows and large stones from the wall. Kind of like a catapult. He also built up the land. The Bible says that he loved the soil. Almost like he had a little farmer in him somewhere. The Ammonites, they paid him tribute and his fame spread all over the ancient world. And then the Bible says this phrase. Then Uzziah became great. In his own eyes. Uzziah became the greatest. In fact, he was so great, he decided that he was going to enter the temple of God and burn incense on the altar, which is in the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but in the holy place, right in front of the veil. Something that the Lord declared only the priest could do. So Uzziah is making a statement. I'm so great, I'm above the law. I'm above the word of God. I'm above the priesthood. And he abandoned any sense of humility he had. Eighty priests stood against him. And he endured, trying to stop the king, pleading with the king. This is a not... A good thing for you to do, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. This is only for the priests, the descendants of Aaron. They've been consecrated, set apart by God. Leave the sanctuary. You should not be here. And in that moment, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And he ran 
from that building out of the temple in fear. And Uzziah was a leper from that day forward. His son, Jotham, governed in his place in all matters that, appear, that, that needed the appearance of the king. Because as a leper, he couldn't be used that way anymore. The lesson of Uzziah is a lesson of what happens when we pursue greatness. When we start to think of ourselves as mightier and mightier and mightier, and you guys have read this in the paper probably your whole time as believers. Anybody ever seen a time when a, a pastor at a congregation that got mightier and mightier and bigger and bigger fell? You ever heard of that? Pursuit of greatness. The pursuit of Christ takes us to a cross. That's a place of humility. That's a place of sacrifice. The, the desire for greatness brings us to the place of destruction. Disease. Destroying ministry. And so Jesus wants the disciples to understand this is how you come to me. Is there something this child brings to the equation? No. There's nothing. Was there something incredible Uzziah had? He had something different than what you have? Does the Bible teach you that Elijah, the prophet who did incredible things for God, that he had something that you don't have. He had something special that made him greater than you. What does the Bible tell us? The Bible says Elijah is a man just like you. There is not a, this magical piece of DNA that we have that elevates us to a position that God can use us because of our holiness or our righteousness or our knowledge. A lot of times those things get in the way. He says, you come to me like a little child. And then he gives a word of warning in verse 6. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, please recognize, I'm not... I'm, the context of the scripture is not talking about when people do wrong to children. It's included. You don't get to do anything to the least of these, to the little ones. But sometimes the little ones are just new believers in Christ, new followers, new disciples, immature. The little ones, this is not just about children. He's saying, if you cause one of these little ones, you cause one of mine who has come to me in humility <clears throat> and you become the stumbling block, you cause them to sin, it'd be better if you put a millstone around your neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. God's not saying that's the punishment. He wants you to set your mind to the point that it would be a better thing for me to do than to come alongside this person that needs disciple, this person that needs encouraged, this person that needs to be mentored and taught. Better than teaching them the sin, just drown yourself. 
if you're not going to, if you're not going to do this, just drown yourself. So if we're looking on the scale of great things to do, drowning yourself is probably not high on that list. You know what I'm going to accomplish next week? I'm going to put a millstone around my neck and throw it in the sea. Nobody's thinking that because we're thinking about how to elevate ourselves. So Jesus wants us to understand how to look at sin. He wants us to understand how to look at sin. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Because there, is there temptations in the world? In, in the lost part? Yes, is there temptations? For sure. And temptations will come. Everybody in here has faced temptation, right? 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, no temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. Right? We all face temptation. <clears throat> we all have besetting sin in our life. And it's necessary, he says, that temptation come. That's a part of living. But woe to the one by which it comes. So if you want to think about being the greatest, here's a good place to start. Be the one who does not put a stumbling block before his brother. Be the one that is not causing his brother to stumble or sin. And while we're thinking about sin, and while we're thinking about this temptation that comes, the Lord gives us this. He's already told us this. This is a statement Jesus made in Matthew chapter 5. This is how we know that Jesus taught these messages over and over and over and over again. The Sermon on the Mount was not something he just said one time. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount is something, it's a series of teachings that Jesus would have given when he went and taught somewhere. Here he says this phrase. You guys should recognize it. He says, if your hand or foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better to, for you to enter life crippled or lame than have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. He brought this up in Matthew chapter 5. Almost word for word, he added foot here. But we get the point, don't we? How should we treat sin? You should keep it around. In our world today, we have this, this, this idea that <clears throat> in an effort to help one another, the best way to help one another is don't judge at all. Well, what if by not saying anything, they're still, well, just have both hands and both feet going to hell. Now, specifically here, Jesus is telling us about ourselves, right? So before you can help somebody else, the word would declare that I need to take care of the log in my own eye, right? So if I've got stuff, I've got things that are causing me to sin, stop making peace with it and get rid of it. Just get rid of it. Cut it out, throw it away, cast it off. He's saying it'd be better for you to, to enter with only one hand. It'd be better for you to come lame than to come fully uh, abled 
and miss what Christ has for you. If your hand causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and go into hellfire. Now, first, God wants us to understand that we're accountable for causing someone to stumble, specifically in the text, solicitation or invitation to sin. When we're soliciting or inviting others to sin. These little ones are those who have put their trust in Christ. A fellow disciple don't cause their trust in Christ to be damaged. To lead a person to sin or cause one to stumble. There's a lot of ways that can happen. Heavy, unfair criticism. Lack of care. Failure to forgive. There's a lot of ways. The despising of the little ones is the attitude that produces this behavior. Don't, don't despise one of these little ones. Don't cause one of these little ones to sin. We want to have the type of example we want to have. And whatever is causing us to sin needs to go, right? Let it go. Paul's going to write in Romans 8, 1, this phrase. But there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus is either our Savior or our judge. If he's your Savior... You're going to follow him, right? And then he won't be your judge. But it is possible to say Jesus is my savior. Anybody can say the words. I know when I say this to people sometimes, especially if they know the word, they'll take me to the Bible and they'll say, no man can call Jesus Lord except the spirit. So unless you have the spirit in you, you can't say the words, Jesus is Lord. Uh, That's not what it's talking about. Those are the words it says. That's what scripture says. What does it mean? Oh, well, sometimes it's important to put scripture back in the context that it's given in. Don't you think that's helpful sometimes? Well, what's going on? Yeah, all the time. So what's going on is they're talking about people who are, the Bible is talking, when it uses a phrase to make the declaration that Jesus is Lord, there was one place you did that in their day. You did that standing before the headsman's axe at the temple of Caesar, and you took a pinch of incense and you said, Jesus is Lord, instead of Caesar is Lord. And Paul is saying, the only way you can do that, because some people would say, I don't know if I could do that. You ever said that? I don't know if I could make the choice to martyr them if it was in front of me. And, and so what he's saying is, well, the only way you do that is through the spirit of the Lord. Amen? Oh, that makes sense, don't it? It is possible for us to give lip service that Jesus is our Savior 
and we understand that temptations will come. We need to give real service. How do I know I've given real service to Jesus? Well, he said I'd come to him like that child. Not as a desire to become the greatest, just as a recognition that I don't have anything. No gold, no silver, no nothing. I'm not bringing anything to the table. The day I came with Jesus was in a single wide trailer. I'd professed Jesus often in my life. I had just confessed to my wife being unfaithful to her multiple times and that I was positive for HIV. What exactly did I have to give Jesus? Hey, Jesus, I want you to save me because I'm such a good person. Oh, I want you to save me because I make so many right decisions and I've really got my act together. No. Literally, on my knees by the, in the ugliest trailer on earth. Ask Kathy, she'll tell you. Before the ugliest couch on earth. I literally raised my hands to God and said, I have nothing. I am nobody. And you have all of me. I think that's what that looks like. That's why it's important that we get the heirs Right? We all put so many masks on. We want everybody to see all the good stuff. We want everybody to see all the spiritual. And I, I'm not saying be, I'm not talking about being a bad example, but just stop with all the fake hocus pocus stuff we got hanging all over the place. Yes. So, ladies, I want you to feel bad. You wear whatever you want to wear, but makeup. That stuff will change your world, won't it? You, <laughs> look, I'm, not, I'm sure none of you guys, I'm going to get myself in trouble. None of you guys are guilty of this. None of you guys are all good. But I've seen videos of people and I look at them before they put makeup on and after they put makeup on and I go, what just happened? So I, I want to use that, not that it's, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying as an illustration of, of how we doll ourselves up with what we think is spiritual. And then we hang around with a bunch of people that do the same thing. And then we wonder why we're having all this drama and problems in church. But Jesus said, when you come to me, come like that child. He's not smart enough to do any of that stuff. He's just what he is. And nobody thinks much of him. That we come this way. Temptation will come, but Jesus is saying to us, don't be the tempter. Now, when I talk about don't be the tempter, I'm, I'm briefly going to run over to Romans 14. Romans 14 is a, a section of scripture you guys should understand, you guys should recognize. So obviously, we've been through Romans before, but it has some familiar passages. Romans 14, 13 says this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment 
on one another any longer. Now, the phrase is, is talking about condemnation. It's talking about, about condemning one another. He says, let's not do this, but rather let's decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, oftentimes the way we think of a stumbling block or hindrance is sometimes a problem. So let's go a little further. He says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Okay. If you guys don't, aren't writing notes, chisel this one in your memory. What did he just say? He didn't say some things are unclean in themselves. Did he say that? He said, the Lord Jesus, I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is, clean, is unclean in itself. But it is unclean if you think it is. So if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. There's a lot of freedom in Christ, amen? But don't by your freedom destroy someone else. And there's two ways you can do it. One, you can, you can tell that person that that what he thinks, how he feels in his conscience, he has no right to feel that way. And if he was a good, real good Christian, he would not feel that way and he should think like you. Uh, I don't think you should do that. Do you know that some of the things that God lays on my heart to stay away from are not things he lays on your heart to stay away from? Do you know that there are we all have things where God says, I can't be anywhere near this, around this, about this. I'm not about to go to a brother who has a conscience that says, A is wrong, and then tell him, it's okay. The Bible doesn't really condemn that. What are you doing? If his conscience convicts him, the Bible tells us, if your conscience convicts you and you're going against your conscience, no matter how good your argument was, you just put a stumbling block in front of your brother. It's not always the negative sense where he watches you do something. Sometimes it's you telling him to do something is okay, but it ain't okay for him. In Romans 14, it kind of, it kind of lays out this it kind of lays out this idea. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. You aren't it. Neither am I. Jesus Christ is head of the church. He is the master to whom I must give account. And Paul's issue is this struggle in Romans whereby people were trying to put their own convictions onto someone else, which is wrong also, right? You know the difference between your convictions and commandments of God, I hope, right? It's not a conviction that thou shalt not kill. That, that is going to be a problem for everybody, Amen. 
Okay. And don't come to me and say, the Lord told me it's okay to kill. No, he did not say it's not, it's not to commit murder. No committing murder. Okay. Let's not do that. We take our convictions, our personal convictions that God has with us because of struggles or issues in our life, and we put them on someone else, and we can cause them to stumble, or, or by our freedom and, and our exercise of careless freedom, we don't care what's happening to our brother, and we cause them to stumble that way. And Jesus said, if that's something your right hand's doing, Cut it off. If that's something your foot's doing, cut it off. If that's something your eye's doing, cut it off. Don't do that. It's part of our desire for greatness that makes us want to be the authority in someone else's life. Do you want to be the authority in somebody else's life? Well, your problem is going to be with the Bible because Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. How much is all authority? Does that mean he's got some for you? So he says, come to me like a little child. No air, no, no masks, no trying to elevate myself. Just a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who wants to be obedient to what God's word does say. Let's think about what God's word does say while we're, while we're thinking about this. We want, we want to see people thrive. Well, how is it that we, we get to where... I've had people tell me... I've heard this in the past. So don't get your feelings hurt, babe. <clears throat> okay. Put, put on your armor. I don't, I don't want any of these darts to hit you. Um, I've heard people say things like, Oh, I just... I can't talk to Kathy. She's just going to be positive about this. And I, I just don't need... I don't need positivity. What, the, what are you talking about? Here's what God's word commands us. Encourage one another today while it is called today. So I know that we, we all want to have a strong pursuit of truth, but this is the question you need to ask yourself. I'm going through this myself. God has brought me on a journey wherein I am responsible to do this more than I have had to do it in the past. And that is to encourage the brethren today. To call someone today. It's today, by the way. And encourage them. It does not say anywhere, call the brother and tell him all the things they're doing wrong. It says, encourage one another today and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now, what day is approaching? Anybody pay attention to the news at all? It's hard to stay excited. Yeah, I don't, I, I try not to watch the news anymore. It's hard to get excited about the future. And so because of all the stuff that's going on, but here's the truth. When you will go out and do what Jesus is saying and encourage one another, you, you call the people, not, not just the people who you like. In fact, it's probably better for you if you call the first person on your list that you thought of, I could never encourage that guy. 
that's probably where you should start. But you call and give them an encouraging word. It's simple. It's not even hard. You know what? I was thinking about you today. That's true. I was thinking about you today. And I want to I be lifting you up in prayer. So is there something I can pray for you about? Will that encourage a brother? Oh, my gosh. Will that strengthen the, the body of Christ? Will that make the church better? Will we see the love of Christ being expressed from person to person in a body that does that? I'll tell you what brings death. All that gossip. That kills. So just stop. If your tongue causes you to sin, cut it off. I just want to go a little bit further. He says in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is the only scripture in the Bible that you can use in any way that says there's a guardian angel. And the, the context is for these little ones, which I would say is... Young believers, early believers, people wanting to be discipled and follow Jesus Christ. And he says, man, the, the angels that are, are walking with them or ministering spirits to them, they always have access to the Father. Isn't that cool to think about? They always have access to the Father. That's what it means when it says they always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain to go in search of the one that went astray? Did anybody catch what just happened? A couple, maybe. So, <clears throat> this would be a good reason to come Monday morning. <clears throat> There is something called the piety of the text. Wow. Sorry. <clears throat> There's something called the piety of the text. What do I mean? It means that the text, the biblical text, never diminished, but it did grow. Hold on. You're all saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Just, just wait. It's coming. Patience is a virtue. Your burger will still be warm. The piety of the text means that there were times when the writers would come to a story like this and they would recognize Luke 19.10 has a phrase in it. You know what it is? For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Now, for some of the modern translations, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Do yourself a favor. Stop listening to them. There's a lot of YouTube videos. Stop listening to them too. <clears throat> there is, this is, I'm just telling you the truth. Okay, I'm not telling you a lie. I'm not getting, nobody's giving me any money. I'm telling you the God honest truth. 
that as the copyists were, were copying down Matthew and they came to this point, someone along the line added the phrase, that, is it true? Yes. It's in Luke. It's true. Did Jesus come to seek and to save a lost? Okay, I'm going to tell you the truth. Matthew didn't write that. Does it mean it's not true? So when you guys go on YouTube and you watch the thing and the thing says, you know, you got to stay away from the ESV and the NIV and the NLT and, and all these kinds of Bibles because they keep pulling stuff out. The truth is what the textual evidence shows is the text grew more pious. We added statements of holiness in. So when someone tells you they read the Bible and in this version it doesn't say the Lord Jesus Christ, it just says Jesus, don't believe there's a conspiracy somewhere to take a Lord and Christ out. The text grew more pious. This is the value of having so many texts that we can look at. Because you can see when something appears and it wasn't there before. Does that make sense to you? So you have... Text, 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 text. Whoa, wait a minute. Don't we have something new? I can see it. I can follow the train of transmission. So I'm only saying this as a side note. Don't let that freak you out. That should not freak you out. Okay? In your Bible, if you don't have verse 11 there, it has a footnote that says, this is not in the earliest manuscripts. All right? All that means is Matthew didn't write this. Who did? Luke. And somebody added it in Luke. Is it true? It's true. Is it a lie that's in the Bible? No, it's not a lie that's in the Bible. It's a place where someone added pious speech or something holy because as they were writing, they're blown away by the things they're reading and they say, you know what would go good here? <laughs> Sorry. I just wanted to make it balanced. Okay, so I want to make sure, I just wanted to make sure I touch on that. If you guys have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about it. I love textual criticism. It's one of the many uh, tools in my belt, and I'm good at it. So if, if you got time, you want to you want to talk about it, you want to talk about it. Immediately afterwards, Jesus talks about going after the lost, right? So, so. Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Are you thankful for that? And his point is, when I, when I seek and find that little lamb and I bring him in, don't eat him. Don't bite him. Don't teach him wrong. Right? But you throw your arms around him and you make him part of the family. And you make sure that you call them and encourage them every day because the Bible tells us that we're supposed to do that every day. Have you been obedient to that? Do you do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Because it says every day. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, every day. All the time. Every day you can find someone that you can give an encouraging word to. Every single day. We are commanded to do that. And we need to be about it. Because as you see the day approaching, people are losing hope. And you know what restores hope? Not, yeah, that's right, not an air of superiority. Not that I'm the greatest and if you just do what I tell you. But 
being encouraging enough to come alongside. Put your arms around and say, we're going to make it. Let's keep going. Jesus wants the disciples to have an attitude that says, stop trying to be better than each other and encourage each other. Cast the sin away from you. That sin, the desiring to be arrogant, that pride that gets in the way, get that pride away from you. Be humble servants of the king. Jesus didn't call for a bunch of chiefs. He called for servants. We have a chief. Paul says the head of the church is Christ. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you, I thank you that the scripture declares for everyone to hear that it is not the will of the Father that one of these should perish. It is not the will of the Father that one of these should perish. We know that Jesus, he would leave the 99 and he will find the one, the one that's wounded or lost or wandering, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Jesus, he, he's given us what's necessary to bring them back. Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, you know how they're going to know you belong to me? The way you love each other. Matthew chapter 18, that's not the sign. But in the book of Acts, while the disciples are teaching about Jesus in the area around the temple and they're brought before the Sanhedrin, you know what they're going to say? Hey, these guys were with Jesus. The reason they'll know you are my disciples by how you love one another. The ancient Romans would look at the example of the early church and and in derision, write about how foolishly they love one another. They would face the gallows. They would stand before the headsman's axe and not declare why they were worthy to miss judgment. They would just stand there and say, Jesus is Lord. I'm following him. There's an old hymn, folk song we sing. Story as it comes out of India. I have decided to follow Jesus. The story goes that standing before the village elders, they began to kill the members of this man's family for his faith in Christ. And he's saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. It has persisted. 
He's not remembered because of his theological degrees, his ability to conjugate Greek verbs. He's remembered not because of his greatness, but for his humility standing before his great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and saying, you are the one I follow no matter what. This is what being a follower of Jesus Christ is supposed to be. Not pious speech. Not a list of do's and don'ts that make you look one way or another, but rather a little child was brought before them and Jesus said, unless you become as this little child, you won't even get in. So my prayer for you this morning, you have your moment before the couch. Don't walk in self-deception. Don't walk in spiritual pride. Jesus said, if you want to be great, you must become the servant of all, the lowest of the low. The example of that was a little child then. Whatever example makes sense to you, this is how Jesus wants us, bids us come. This morning, as we, we go, as we close out this time of prayer, I just encourage you, there will be men and women spread around the church who are only here to pray for you, encourage you. Please utilize that which God has provided so that you can overcome. And may we leave this place today changed with a desire to love one another as God in Christ has loved us. So Lord, move, spirit guide. We give this time to you. We thank you for the study of your word. We praise you for the understanding that you have brought. And we ask God that you would change, transform lives, change hearts for the glory of the Lord God Almighty. In Jesus' name, amen.